We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. James chapter 4. That's where we are. And I'll just start again at the beginning of that chapter. We remind ourselves that at the beginning of the book, the primary initial audience was given to us, told to us. And the word that I highlight is the word brethren. And so what that means is, in our context, is that those were what we would consider to be Christian people, people who believed the things of God, who believed on his son and that he was a propitiation for sins and they had committed themselves to him, had trusted him, had believed on him have the Holy Spirit within them. These are a special people now because they have been born again or, as it might be better understood, born from above. Not what they were before, but still with capabilities, capacities to do bad stuff that they had done before. And he's talking to them and he's giving them a lot to think about. Now, when we think about a group like that, just think. So these were 12 tribes scattered abroad. So we can understand that at least in some of these tribes or some of these areas where the churches were, we wouldn't suggest that every one of those had all the problems, but at least all the problems were present somewhere. And it was important for all of them to pay attention and to listen and understand. And so what he says here is, in these first three verses, he talks about a situation where, think about it, everybody is professing to be, let's say, a believer, a good, upstanding Christian, living the way God is pleased with. And among them are wars, and fights or and you think of that wars and fights among that group now warring and fighting or quarreling and disputing or quarrels and conflicts those are common that's human nature basically drives that sort of activity. But what is drawn to our attention here is that these are not just a group of people just at random, selected from the world to whom this letter is given, but it's given to the brethren. It's given to us to consider 
And it still is amazing to look at actually what the text says. Because it says here in verse number one, where do wars and fights or, or quarrels and conflicts come from among you? And then it says, in a rhetorical question, he says this. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So there he is pointing to something that is internal to them, something that's going on inside of them, desire for pleasure. Some people seem to think that the highest goal for living is to have pleasure, to have pleasurable experiences, to be involved in pleasurable activities, to seek after those things which would bring those kinds of emotions or feelings or whatever those things are. But James has a problem with that. Because he says here, you have these desires for pleasure. These things are welling up in you. And it's causing a problem. So what does that mean for the people to do? For each person. It's a matter of examining the heart and see. Our desires for pleasures causing me, you, any of us, to get involved in quarrels and conflicts that we shouldn't be involved in, in the assembly. <laughs> See, because the context is kind of specific here. Of course, we shouldn't be getting involved in things that we shouldn't, by quarreling and fussing and fighting and all that, improperly in any context. But the context here is among the Christian people. And that's why it's so solemn for us to, to take some time to just pause and think about some of these things. Because then he goes on to say, you lust. Oh, you have a passion for these things, but you don't, you don't have. And not having what you do. So he says, murder. That's a very strong word. It's hard for us to think that a good Christian person could be subject to such a thing or could subject themselves to such. But he's, he's saying then that the passion out of which that desire is driven is the same kind of passion that leads to murder. He said, you, you murder, you covet, you can't obtain, you fight a war. And then he says... This is interesting. You do not ask because, I mean, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, if they were to ask for things that they needed, things that God was pleased for them to have, they could be assured that God would ask affirmatively for them to be able to have what they need. But if it is for use that is 
contrary to what God wants, then there should be no expectation to receive that because God is not going to give to someone for them to use it or misuse it. He's not given for that purpose, and so we shouldn't expect it. So that's what he says in the next part of it. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So this idea, this desire for pleasure is again here emphasized. And so what he's talking about there is motive. Motives matter. Motives matter. The motive for which the person is doing a thing matters. It matters to God. I know sometimes in our contemporary affairs, there are situations where people say they were offended. They couldn't care less what your motive was. They, they want to hold you to account because they feel offended. <laughs> but here he says they were asking, but their asking had the wrong motive. They were asking for good things from God to be used for evil, evil. Now, that's not a present place to be. And if a person is doing that, do you think that a Christian person, at the time they're doing it, is fully aware, fully aware of what they're doing? I suggest that sometimes people can be self-deceived to the point where they maybe are not aware of the culpability of what they're doing. And that's why, and I'm going to get to that again, it's important, and I keep saying that. So we have our Bibles here. It is important that we do read them and pay attention to them and ask God to help us understand what it is that is being said here to us because otherwise we're not going to have a stable guide, a non-moving God, a God, a standard that doesn't change. If we don't have this Bible, we're not going to have that. And that's how a lot of people get entangled. Because they hear something and it sounds good to their ears. And they don't have this standard to, to measure it by. And so they get involved in asking amiss. And so he says there then, moving along in the verse. I reread three, verse three, chapter four. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your pleasures. And then in verse four, he says there, he uses these two words, adulterers and adulteresses. So that means somebody who's given fidelity to the wrong party. They're committing their interest to the wrong one. And that is a serious problem. And so he brings up two concepts here that are very important. Friendship with the world. Enmity with God or being an enemy of God. Now those are things that 
need a lot of attention. So he says here, adulterers and adulteresses. And granted, your translation may just have one of those words, adulteresses, I think. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world. I pondered that and still do ponder it. I guess I pondered it for years. I've heard different people talk about that. But there is a real issue involved here that deserves our attention. And I think I said the last time, but the way that I'm looking at this is, is like this. I'm thinking of the world in this context as a system that operates on principles that are contrary to what God says is good. And so the people who are propagating those systems to friendship with the world in that context, that's enmity with God. Many of the world's systems have no place for God. And some are openly hostile toward him. And some people who promote those systems are openly antagonistic towards people who try to serve God according to biblical principles. And so to want friendship, the friendship of that crowd who are doing that sort of thing, James in this epistle is saying, that's the wrong place to put your affection. You shouldn't be seeking to have the accolades of people who are doing things that are contrary to what God says is right. You shouldn't be championing them in their wrongful activities, supporting their wrongdoing, imbibing and embracing and propagating their false concepts, uh, wicked, evil concepts sometimes, openly so. But unfortunately, unfortunately, there are things where we see people sometimes who have good standing as Christian leaders doing that very thing. That is not good. Because it's not good to be in a situation of enmity with God or to have God as one's enemy. That means God is fighting back, pushing back. So then it says, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now who in their right mind among the Christian people want to be an enemy of God or God to be their enemy? Who wants that? No Christian person in their right mind will say, I want God as my enemy. I want him 
pushing up against me. But he says, the one who wants to be a friend of the world, and I try to give an idea because world is a concept that is used in a lot of different ways. Obviously, we are in the world, and we are to participate in the world. And there are good things that we should be doing in the world. That's not the part that's spoken against here. It's the part that has to do with the things that are taking us away from what God wants. To want to be friendship, the friendship of that part of what the world systems are is what is invaded against here. And so we must be conscious about that and understand what all those things mean. So then he goes on to say in verse number five, or do you think that the scripture says in vain? The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but it gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I read somewhere where someone said, well, that verse, a part of that verse I just read is one of the most difficult ones to interpret uh, to properly understand because the whole idea is says the spirit which dwells in you. What spirit is being spoken about here? Is that the Holy Spirit or is that the spirit of the person? And what is this jealousy? So if you read different ones, you're going to have different ideas. But I think we can get the main point without having to know uh, precisely or to dig our heels in on one interpretation or another as far as exactly which of those. But I'm just going to give you the way I've come to it at, at least at this point. Now by next week, I may have a different view on that because I haven't given it up and I'm still looking at it. But, but the way I'm looking at it is this. I'm thinking in terms of what I see before that phrase, the spirit that jealously yearns within us, and what I see after it, that I'm taking it as the spirit, the Holy Spirit being in us, yearning or desiring for us to do the thing we should be doing, and that that's what the struggle is, that spirit of God. I must think about Spirit make an intercession for us because we need it. And that's the way I'm leaning in terms of how to understand what is being said there. So now then, because he, he just finished talking about being an enemy of God or enmity with God, that's not a good thing. And then see what he follows on with. He talks about humility uh, to he gives grace. So then in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So God is an active God. Some people have known, been known to say that, well, creator, got everything started and then 
they're whatever. I guess when it's exile, enjoy it and let it go. But this says, I think that's present tense. God resists the proud. So don't be one of them. But it gives grace to the humble. And so we have two things there, a dichotomy. Which camp to be in? To be one of the proud ones whom God resists? Or to be one of the humble ones to whom God shows grace, that gives mercy? I think we know the answer to that. So then, James is talking about, throughout this epistle, how to become rightly aligned with God. Now, we know that the first step is that word of God through which we learn to become believers in Christ. But then, having gotten the new life from him. There's a lot to be, there's a lot to pay attention to. There's a lot to accomplish before this vapor vanishes. This vapor, your vapor. <laughs> we're vapors. But, and we're vanishing. And it won't be long. But between now and then, what are we to do? And that's what he gives here. So it's amazing here to list. I'm going to read down through some of these things here. I just picked them right out of the text. I put them here. I may have missed something in my notes here. but He says, submit to God. So that's at the top of the list. Submit to God. Of course, no one ever becomes a believer in Christ without that submission, a recognition, and then a submission to him. And then he says, resist the devil. Active participation in pursuing a life that is aligned properly with God. He says, draw near to God. Draw near to him. And there's a promise. He said, if you draw near to him, I can tell you what he's going to do. He says, if you draw near to him, he's going to draw near to you. So you can imagine what will happen if you do the opposite and draw away from him. But he says here, draw near to God. These are imperatives. So James is saying these are commands, imperatives. So what he's essentially saying, you as brethren, I know enough about you to know that a genuine brother, a genuine believer, wants to be in a right alignment with God. I know that much. And because I know that, I can tell you how to go about it. I can tell you what you need to do. And if you're willing to do that, then you can get a better alignment with God. That's what he's saying. So he says, submit to God, resist the devil, Draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And then it says, lament and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. So if you recognize that you're not properly aligned, or I recognize I'm not properly aligned with God, that is an occasion for lament and mourning and weeping. That is a, an occasion for turning mourning, uh, joy to bloom, bloom because of grieving. And say, Lord, help me. I need your help to get straightened out here. And I want you to do that for me. And so that's what he says. He said all these things. You want to know how to be rightly aligned with God? Follow all these things. So then, I think naturally, if somebody is told that this is what you need, told to do all these things, to say, well, that's a mighty strong list. In fact, some people might say, well, that's too much. I can't do it. I'm going to turn back, turn away from it. That's not good. But you know, we in, our, in the first chapter of James, when we say how uh, can we go about doing that, I'm going to suggest that we go back and look at what we read already. If we go back to chapter 1 and look at verse number 25 and see what it says there. That verse says, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, that is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So I think what James is saying is, this is a tall order, but you're not left to your own devices. You're not to do it by your own devices. You ought to pay attention to God's word. And through that means, the Spirit of God will work in and through you, and you can be blessed in what you do. I'm going to give another reading for that verse, 125 of James. This comes from the LSB. I know some, some of you probably are reading that one too. But this is the way that text says it. This is chapter 1 of James, verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. I think that's good to, to, to see the different reading in that because it is important and it's hard to think that we could overemphasize a point like that. I don't think we can. So it was a legacy standard Bible. 
Oh, you want me to read it one more time? She wants me to read that one more time. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. Good? Okay. So I'm taking that perfect law in a general sense to apply to the full word of God, the whole word of God. That, that's the application I'm using for that verse four. Now in the last uh, section here, we see, well, I guess the next portion, starting at verse 11. Now all those things that I picked out, I'm not gonna go through those individually. I just read those things. And then in verse 11, he says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? There is one lawgiver, just one. And there's no point in trying to usurp the place of that one because it puts you in a bad place. One lawgiver. And this one lawgiver is able to save and to destroy another part, just saying again, a different, in a different expression, the need for humility before God, to be humble under the mighty hand of God. And so there were brothers who were putting themselves in a place where they shouldn't have been, improperly bringing wrong judgments against each other, stirring up strife that didn't need to be, and they needed to be reminded of what they're supposed to be doing and that God is the judge. So now we know that when we say these things and this thing about judging, that some people get off track and think that a verse like this, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer but a, of the law, but a judge, and how it speaks against judge. And so some people think, well, you can never judge. <laughs> but see, I think the point is that you have to understand that we have to make judgments. And so because otherwise we can't be found to do what God requires of us without making judgments. And that's even sometimes judgments about what people are doing or not doing. We have to see it and recognize it. That's not what he's talking about. The wrong kinds of judgment, wrong judgment, is the, is the focus here. So there's the one lawgiver. If you're properly aligned with him, 
then we're less likely to be wrongly judging our brothers because we have the standard by which to measure our own motivations and the reasons why we're doing what we do. And if we're not well grounded in sound Bible doctrine, then we need to pause. And then for the last uh, part of this, verses 13 to 17, he says, be humble. Now, this is my head. Be humble. God is the only one who knows the future. Be humble. God is the only one who knows the future. So some of them would say, and here's the way they think about what they were going to do. They will say, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to this place. And I'm going to stay for this long. And I'm going to accomplish these things while I'm there. And then I'm going to come back again. And James says, no, 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 no. That is not what the brethren should be doing. It's not that they are forbidden to go or even to seek a prophet. That's not the point. But my point is, and I'm going to read. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell a name, and make a profit. Now, many people have gone out seeking to make a profit and didn't make it. <laughs> but these ones, he says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, but what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You think about that when your friends and family members and loved ones come to the end of their life, end of their time. I said it yesterday in a men's prayer meeting. My phone had a jingle. So I looked down to see what was there. It was a note from my sister. A vapor had expired. A cousin. No more in this life. Just like that. I had just spoken with her about him a few days before. I knew he was ill. But this is what he says about us. So he says, to be arrogant, as if you know what tomorrow will be, don't do that. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, or what is your life, it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. If it appears for a little time. That means that if there's something that we ought to do, we need to get on with it. I was talking to a couple of people, I think it was, I don't know if it was Wednesday night or recently here, and I said, well, if there's something you need to do, or I need to do, I better get on with it, because the time is short. And it won't be too long. If I'm still around, I'm going to be old. And I'm not going to be able to do 
the things that I'm able to do now. So if there's something we need to be doing, we need to get on with it. Now, I said if. That was to draw attention <laughs> because it's not an if. We know the things we need to do or ought to do. So it's not if. It's just that recognize those things and we need to be getting on with it because it's for a little time then vanishes. So he says here, what you ought to do is say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. Arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Arrogance. There's an overabundance of arrogance these days. If you listen to some of the people who have the platforms in various venues, you can see it on bold display. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. Sin? Some people say, don't talk to me about that word. Don't use that word with me. But, you know, they can say, I'm going to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, or I'm going to be arrogant and try to do it my way. The choice God gives to us. We're going to pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you because we know that you have enabled us. You have given to us everything, life, breath, strength, sufficient clothing, shelter, even on the earth upon which we can live. All these things are from the hand of God, from above, gifts to us. And we ask you to help us now to recognize and to understand how not to be merely a hearer of the word, but a doer. We ask in the name of Christ, our Savior, with thanksgiving. Amen. So thank you very much for your kind attention.